Hey, Future Hindsight listeners, we've just been given an awesome opportunity to expand our show, but we need your help. We're doing a short audience survey and need at least 50 responses. That's where you come in. To participate, please go to our show notes and click on the link for the survey there. It'll take about five minutes to complete it. It's a great free way to support Future Hindsight and all the work that we do. We hope you'll take the time to help us out. Thanks so much in advance, and thank you also for being such loyal listeners. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Laura Briggs. She's professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and she studies the relationship between reproductive politics, neoliberalism, and the long-term historical structures of U.S. empire and imperialism. We'll be talking about her latest book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror. It argues that for 400 years, the United States has taken children for political ends, which is to say to oppress certain communities, whether that's the enslaved, Native Americans, Central American refugees, or the poor. In 1960 alone, 150,000 black children entered the child welfare system as southern states passed suitable home rules one after another. And I think it's really important to think about the modern child welfare system being born in that moment as part of the work of punishing black communities in rebellion for their work in seeking to desegregate public accommodations through the schools. We examine the long history of taking children by the U.S. government and what this history reveals about racism in America. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed your book. You showed that the United States has a long history of taking children all the way back to the time of slavery and, of course, subduing Native communities. Why did you write this book at this time? Well, I started to write it in the 2018-2019 period when we were all so focused on the Trump administration's policy of taking the children of asylum seekers at the border. I knew a lot about the fact that the Obama administration had done this, the Bush administration had done this. And I was struck by the conversation about this is not America. And I wanted people to really think about what would it mean to say this is the United States, this is what we've been doing, and we've got to stop. Now, you argue that child separation policy is a product of racial nationalism. How does child separation look to achieve the goals of racial nationalism? How does it work? So we've all been thinking a little more than usual about racial nationalism or white nationalism in the aftermath of the riot and coup attempt with the Trump administration. It's the people that we sometimes call the alt-right. And what the alt-right has done is sort of pick up a thread that's been present in U.S. history since its inception of thinking about this as a white country. And this was the 
basis on which slavery became racial, that it wasn't white people who could be enslaved or compelled to work without wages. It was African and African-descended people. That was the conditions under which indigenous people could be pushed off of their land. And so I wanted to think about those as sort of twin pillars of the founding of the United States with a focus on how taking children has been a key part of enacting those as practices and policies of the United States. When I read your book, I thought that the examples of having children taken away from the enslaved, that was very familiar in a sense that I think this is something that a lot of people know about and have read and see in textbooks, but that the separation of children from their families of indigenous children was much less known. Your chapter about indigenous children was most illustrative of these white nationalist goals, which, as you have just said, have been with us since the beginning of this nation. So tell us a little bit about what the process was and what was really the key driving factor in taking the children from Native communities. Abolitionist activists made the question of taking children from enslaved mothers and other kin and caregivers, a central piece of how they fought against enslavement, how they fought to have the Civil War be a fight over slavery. On the contrary, though, with Native kids, taking the children of Native people was treated as a progressive policy. And the reason why people in the 19th century thought of it as progressive and into the 20th century is because the alternative was, frankly, killing people. As U.S. settlers moved west, the Indian wars of the 19th century were about killing people, displacing them, overturning treaties, overturning the sort of legal apparatus of the relationship between indigenous people and Anglo settlers that had evolved since the 17th century. By the 1890s, there were still Plains Indian Wars, a little bit kicking around, also in the Southwest, Apaches. And so the question was, was there ever going to be an end to the Indian Wars? And one of the proposals for how to bring an end to Indian Wars, short of giving them back their land and treating them with respect, was to take children and to detribalize children by putting them in boarding schools, compelling them to learn English, um, cutting their hair, interrupting the transmission of culture and peopleness to Native kids. And so Native kids were sent to boarding schools that were run under the aegis of military discipline and military rules. In 1928, we had the clearest reckoning with what was going on in Native boarding schools. There was a report, it was called the Miriam Report for the guy who uh, wrote it up from the Brookings Institution. The Miriam Report said that across boarding schools, children were ill-clothed, ill-housed, ill-fed, that there were significant cemeteries on the grounds of native boarding schools, that children were being 
taken from communities, often by force, and that the goal of Native boarding schools was really to turn them into a servant class. They were being farmed out in the summers to work for white families as farmhands, as domestics. And this was the beginning of the end of boarding schools. But people who went to boarding schools are still very much around. There's also significant mental health research about what survivors of boarding schools went through in terms of trauma and how that manifests later in their lives as suicide attempts or alcohol abuse, and even manifests in their children as trauma. Yes, that's the most heartbreaking thing, that the trauma gets passed on To what extent was this campaign of taking children actually successful in terms of achieving dominance over these populations? Well, every time I hear about another effort to preserve Native language, um, I think of it as part of the continuing crisis of the boarding school policy that we went from a time in the 19th century where a significant number of Native adults and youth were Indigenous language speakers to one where Indigenous languages are endangered is about the kind of cultural genocide that was enacted through boarding school policy. Yes, indeed. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the way you set up the book is that even though we no longer have enslaved people and we no longer really have these boarding schools, we continue to take children away through welfare or through mass incarceration. How did these two historical precedents morph into, let's say, first, the taking of children through welfare. So as the Black Freedom Movement transformed itself into a movement against segregation and public accommodations in the 1950s, what was the primary target? The lawyers that failed in Plessy versus Ferguson to desegregate the railroad turned instead to black children. And so black children in significant ways became the focus of the civil rights movement in Brown v. Board, in school desegregation. And the other thing that was going on at the same time was white segregationists were not just focusing on school desegregation and trying to stop it, but they were also trying to say that the black community wasn't the sort of respectable community that was being portrayed on the evening news as primarily church-led organizations. They wanted to focus attention on welfare and impoverished mothers and their children. And so they started saying that impoverished mothers were promiscuous, were having lots of children out of wedlock. And so white segregationists came to focus on what they called welfare fraud or welfare dependency. And the more black communities fought for their freedom, the more welfare was cut, 
And ultimately what we saw was a transformation of a very small child welfare program that primarily served white families to one that actively worked to take black children. White supremacists explicitly relied on what were called suitable home rules, whether children were in proper homes with essentially a nuclear family. And if they weren't, they could run the risk of being taken. And so in 1960 alone, 150,000 black children entered the child welfare system as southern states passed suitable home rules one after another. And I think it's really important to think about the modern child welfare system being born in that moment as part of the work of punishing black communities in rebellion for their work in seeking to desegregate public accommodations through the schools. At the same time, in the West, indigenous communities were fighting tribal termination and they too began to lose children in significant numbers until such time as many as a third of Native children were in out-of-home care again. And this is after the decline of the boarding schools. You know, what really shocked me when I read this book is that these cycles just reappear, you know, it just pops up in another form, but with the same goals. And so what is the legal mechanism I think it's worth talking about because it continues to exist today in the government through welfare workers or through mass incarceration that gives them the legal right to take the children and that these parents all feel powerless to get their children back. Most people think that what the child welfare system is doing is mostly protecting children from abuse. But children who enter the child welfare system are actually overwhelmingly the children of birth parents who are accused of child neglect. And while states say they don't take children for reasons of poverty, over and over again, what child neglect looks like is not having food in the fridge, having a bad landlord and exposed wires, having homelessness. And so there's actually, in the last year, increasingly a movement to stop trying to reform the child welfare system and talking about defunding it, ending it. Because what we have essentially in this country are two ways of handling families in crisis. I'm a scholar. I'm a, a middle class. If something happens to me, I become really sick or I develop a substance abuse problem or I go to jail, then what's going to happen to my kids is they're going to wind up with my sister. They're going to wind up with a relative. What happens to impoverished people is that they very quickly lose their children to the enforcement agencies associated with poverty and have what Aaron Miles Cloud calls the civil death penalty, which is you lose the right to your child. And so we're increasingly in a conversation about a child welfare system that a lot of activists have sought to reform into a movement to think hard about how else we can care for families in crisis. Yeah, that would be really good to do that. I don't know 
I don't know. I don't want to be cynical whether we'll succeed as a society because we're so deeply entrenched in the way that we are actually, right? One of the things that you say in the book is that I'm quoting back to you now, child taking grew into more flexible grammar of counterinsurgency. And I thought this is really fascinating because, of course, we are waging war against our own population through counterinsurgency. And so when you think about it that way, um, what is the possibility for reform? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think that the problem is that it's not just or even particularly a conservative effort to use the conservative language to take the children of welfare mothers and put them in orphanages. It's also something that liberals believe in. When I lived in Arizona 10 years ago, there was a child who died when child welfare workers placed him with his father, even though there was a court order saying his father was not supposed to have contact with him, only his mother was supposed to have contact with him, and his father was abusive. And so the question was, how on earth did that happen, and how terrifying is that? And the thing that was most distressing in a way is that the answer was, well, the child welfare system obviously needs more money, right? Because the assumption was that something that like that that happened was an accident that could be solved with additional funding. But as many activists have said about the police, the more money we pour into the system, the more it acts like an authoritarian system. And so we're a long way from understanding what it would look like to care for children without a punitive system. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Remember how I asked you to do something for us for free at the top of the hour? Now we're doing something for you for free. I know I've been telling you to join the Civics Club so you can hear bonus content, ad-free episodes, and read our transcripts. This week, we have a special treat. You can go to our Patreon page and listen to more of this interview for free and learn about Laura Briggs's personal experiences and how they have added depth and perspective to the book. We thought that this bonus content really should be heard by all of you. Head over to patreon.com slash futurehindsight to tune in. And remember, for just $1.99 a month, you can support our indie podcast and become part of the Civics Club. See you there. Well, I want to pivot a little bit to a big chunk of your book, which is about the taking of children in South America, which fit hand in glove with what's happening here. Different countries have different flavors, but they all basically amount to the same thing, which you described for the native children. But how does the taking of children in South America fit in with this history and inform what's happening today with, for example, the Trump administration's policies? Well, because I had spent a lot of time thinking about the Reagan administration and its participation in wars in Central America and the taking of children in El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, 
The Reagan administration certainly didn't want to see the refugees that essentially its own policies had participated in creating migrating to the United States. And so in order to terrify people who were undocumented, children were held in immigration detention. If you were undocumented and your kid was being held in immigration detention, if they had migrated without you trying to find you, you couldn't pick them up without yourself being deported. And since there were active wars still going on in the 80s and 90s, people very much didn't want to be deported. In fact, that was the situation of a young woman, Jenny Flores, who I think a lot of people have heard of indirectly as part of the Flores Agreement about the treatment of children in immigration detention. Bill Barr was actually involved with that case under the Bush administration. And so that was an effort by immigration advocates to demand decent treatment for children. And it failed then as it continues to fail now. Children remain in immigration detention for no reason. Like, it's not like anybody's suggesting that they are seriously a threat to anybody, national security, something like that. What they are is inconvenient for U.S. federal policy. So what is the tension between U.S. policy towards Central America and let's say Central and South American labor, and at the same time funding oppressive regimes, and then not being able to get out of this vicious cycle of funding those regimes that then kick out refugees, meaning you know they are so desperate that they come here and then we reject them, we send them back only to be killed, and it just makes it worse. There's actually a reason why children become the focus of this kind of conservative ire and also enforcement, in that what the United States wants from Latin American citizens is their labor, but not their children. They want people to come and pick crops in California or Arizona or Washington, but they don't want people to stay and build lives and have their children. And actually, Bill Clinton, in a way, created the worst conflict for these sets of policies that focused on labor by militarizing the border. And so once it militarized the border, then people who had crossed or been recruited to work in the U.S. couldn't cross back to be with their families. They had to stay if they were going to work and send money back. So the United States has a long history of making alliances not with nations, but with particular leadership within those nations. Throughout the anti-communist period, the United States would prop up unpopular governments or try to install unpopular governments and then be shocked when their policies resulted in people who can basically walk to California would come to the United States for work. 
And so these histories of relationship, both political and labor, between the United States and Latin America have given rise to generations, first of circular migration and now of one-way migration. Yes, it's very complex, as you just said. And as days go by, we become even more closely enmeshed in a system that we can't get out of. So if you could be in public policy, what would be the first thing that you would do to try and undo, start to unravel this regime of centuries of child taking? Some of the simplest answers are like, raise the minimum wage. Part of what's being criminalized for both impoverished people within the U.S. and impoverished people in the greater Americas region is simply poverty, right? If people could make a living wage, then children would be much, much better off. The other thing the United States and the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank has done increasingly is to stop making loans and policy in relationship to a central government. And so they're fundamentally breaking down the central government. And as we're beginning to experience in the United States, that is an epically crisis-making event. And so monetary policy and, in Trump's case, seemingly deliberate action has left more and more sort of communities and individuals able to wreak havoc and other individuals unable to make a decent living. That's the big macro level problem that we've got to deal with. The smaller problems that we can look at at the state level are about how do we undo the harm that state foster care programs are doing, child welfare programs? How do we start helping people to both build the resources to cope with ill health or substance abuse kinds of crises that can make it very difficult to take care of children? How do we develop resiliency and allow multiple generations of parents and grandparents to take care of kids, neighbors, communities. We're doing the opposite. We're making it extraordinarily difficult legally to raise a kid that your relationship to isn't clear. I can say that actually really easily as myself, a queer parent, to raise my oldest, who's 32, I raised her with no legal relationship to her because you couldn't have two mothers in Arizona. I couldn't register her for school. I couldn't get her health care. The more we make legal ties between parent and child, the most important thing, the more difficult it is for communities to step in and care for children and families in crisis. But I get to be more and more of an economic determinist. Like, it's not even that complicated. The more impoverished people are made poorer made to survive on minimum wage, the worse off we all are. Yes, I agree. Well, so as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to 
demand that our government stops the taking of children, or maybe to your point of making economic determinants actually really work. Right. So I think that we can write, talk to our neighbors, think about how do we build a multiracial democracy and an economy that works for the 99%. Those are the two big things. We're moving into a period when the Democrats are going to be in control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Is that an opportunity to think clearly about health care and wages, an immigration policy that doesn't criminalize immigrants, that doesn't, as Trump did, try to destroy the asylum system. He's almost done it. And what is this huge separation between economic immigrants and asylum seekers? And is that doing people any good? And talking to people, writing things, posting to social media, Trump getting kicked off Twitter, setting off a total crisis, reminds us of how incredibly powerful social media is and how accessible it is to all of us. And I think the work of calling legislators and demanding the end of mass incarceration and stronger economic policies that support people support actual people, not the wealthiest. But above all, I think we've really got to talk to each other, like rebuild this culture in which we can understand that families deserve support. They don't deserve criminalization and separation. Yes, yes, exactly. So I have a philosophical question for you. Why do you think has it been so hard to eradicate this practice? Is it just human nature to be cruel? Or is there really always somebody thinking about the big picture? So in the cases that I document and pay attention to, there are winners and losers, which is to say somebody is benefiting from the separation of children from their parents. In the 1980s with the crack baby crisis, this is the moment when the business class is heavily lobbying for an end to taxes going up and trying to essentially disenfranchise African-Americans. And so part of how Reagan does that, part of how Nixon does that before him, is criminalizing African-Americans by making everyday, petty, unimportant crimes super illegal. So if you gave a false name to a police officer and you were an immigrant, that was a felony. And these kinds of cruelties were always in the service of something. They were in the service of making sure that the government had no sense of responsibility for people who were between jobs or people who were impoverished or mothers who couldn't figure out how to take care of their kids. So no, I don't think it's just that we're capable of being cruel to each other, although we certainly are. Just as we moved in only a handful of years from children in cages on the southwest border to mobs chanting, hang Mike Pence, none of us at the end of the day, 
are actually safe as long as we're enacting public policies that are particularly cruel to some people. Yes. Well, one of my favorite quotes in your book is that racism bites white people too, which is, uh, you know, for Mike Pence, especially apt. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I'm extremely hopeful about the fact that the Movement for Black Lives has included in its vision statement for 2020, ending the foster care system. I think that the work, although it seems out of reach this week, the work of building a multiracial democracy that enacts justice for all of its people and treats all of its people in similar ways. I'm really hopeful about the fact that for the first time since Gallup has been surveying people, the majority of people in the United States say we're not admitting enough immigrants and we should admit more people under the asylum system. While the Trump administration has been agonizingly polarizing, It has also built many kinds of consensus that I think were not available under the Obama administration. I was a immigration rights activist under the Obama administration. I was horrified by how easily people accepted really harsh immigration enforcement from that administration and really harsh criminalization of all sorts of people. I think we're in a different place now. It's a hard place, but I think there's a lot of room to move forward right now. I hope you're right. That would be really awesome. I also was very surprised in reading your book how bad the Obama administration actually was in a way that somebody like me didn't realize. So I hope you're right. I'm hopeful about the future with the new administration that there's at least somebody who's listening. You know, I think that's a good start. I think that's right. Thank you for being on the show and congratulations on your book. Thanks very much. The legacy of taking children as a racist practice, as well as our fraught relationship with South American countries, expose that the detention of Central American refugee children at the border is a continuation of cruel policies against children of the enslaved and of indigenous tribes. It's mind-boggling that it's also simultaneously happening right now in poor communities all over the United States. I'm definitely encouraged by a movement to end foster care, but I'm not confident that we'll be seeing a lot of progress on caring for families in crisis in a non-punitive manner. I am, however, cautiously optimistic that the newly elected administration can make a substantive dent in addressing poverty with their aggressive numbers on COVID relief and trying as hard as they can to roll back the most cruel policies of the Trump administration. Next week, our guests are Sarah Pierce and Amy Sazu. Sarah is Director of Education Equity at NDN Collective, working to expand opportunities for Native American students to culturally relevant and responsive learning environments. Amy is an NDN Collective organizer who serves as Parent Advisory Committee President 
to help Native parents and students bring their issues to senior leadership of the school board in their district. We talk about the history of schooling in Indigenous communities and the opportunities for education equity going forward. There's a gamut of social issues that we see that are primarily symptoms of trauma that was basically started in the boarding school. And right now, I think education is a way in which we can start navigating the systems of oppression. It's the systems in place that reinforce the sentiments of white supremacy that keep Indigenous people specifically from rising up and prospering in a society. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.